Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. This is the third story about Ella Manuel's friends and neighbors in Bombay. Here she learns about a well-known Norris Point family and their connections with the late 19th century history of Bombay, as Nan Harding remembers. I hadn't been long in Woody Point when M said, I have to take you to see Nan Harding, Uncle Bryant's mother. She's one for yarning, so we'll have to take a whole day off. We did that crossing to Norris Point by the morning ferry and walking up the lane to a big square white house with a glassed-in veranda across the front. Nan was then nearly ninety years old. All day she would sit enthroned in a rocking chair on the sun porch that overlooked the cove and the rock-lined entrance to East Arm. Directly in front of the house was a garden such as one rarely sees in our climate. It had a bird bath, a goldfish bowl rimmed with symmetrical smooth stones gathered from the beach around Sally's Cove, and sweet rockets, sunflowers, dahlias, and roses. Nan loved color and variety. She loved company, too, and had plenty, for everyone who passed through the village came to visit. At any hour of the day she would call for cups of tea and plates of cake for her guests. These would be brought on a silver tray covered with a linen cloth, and Nan would dispense hospitality with the air of a dowager duchess. She had a phenomenal memory, except in the matter of her second marriage. This she had obliterated from her mind the moment she decided it was impossible, and that was not long after she had contracted it. Her first husband, who died young, was Bryant's father, and she had returned to her son's house to live out her life as John Harding's widow. M had warned me, don't ask questions, she'll take the helm, but where she'll sail, God only knows. Indeed, Nan covered vast distances that day as we sat with her on the sun porch while she finished a piece of fancy work, her hands as busy as her tongue. "'My, that's a pretty ring,' she said, admiring my Labradorite stone. "'I minds I had a beautiful one once. "'Diamond it was that John brought me from Halifax. "'I lost it. Dear me, wasn't I put out about that. "'I even cried. "'Handsome man John was, and generous too. "'Of course, I deserved the ring, "'considering I got him started in business, so to speak.' "'She smoothed the silk of her dress with a long, thin hand, "'and a little smile crept to her lips and her fine grey eyes.' We were doing just fair with the fish and the lobsters that time, certainly not getting rich, and that was when the British men of war used to come in to water and get whatever supplies they could. One day the rear admiral's flagship came in, and I mind I was in a hurry because I wanted to dress up and go on board with John. Well, I was in the kitchen taking the bread out of the oven, and who should come in but the admiral's steward? He was some taken with that bread, I can tell you. It said it smelled just like heaven. He asked me if I could spare a loaf for the Admiral's supper, so I wrapped a bun in a cloth and gave it to him. Well, next morning, who should come to my door but the rear Admiral himself? My, he was pleased with my bread and said it was the best he ever ate. He said he wanted to ask me something, so I invited him in. What he wanted to ask, to Nan's utter astonishment, 
was would she undertake to supply the fleet with bread during the summer cruises. Nan said she couldn't do that, never in the world. For one thing, her oven was too small, and for another, how on earth could she mix such enormous batches of dough? The admiral swept aside her objections. They sat at the dining room table, and he drew plans for an oven to be built in the backyard, such as, he said, the women of Quebec used. They discussed making wooden troughs for mixing and made mathematical calculations of the ingredients. And then, while John built the ovens and fashioned the mixing troughs, Nan collected her materials. Ah, the first two batches were hard as rocks, she recalled, and the third was so soft it wouldn't rise. But we got the hang of it finally and began supplying the ships with good homemade bread. And then the admiral said to them, Well, why don't you supply us with fresh meat as well? So John travelled the coast by boat and on foot, bargaining for animals on the hoof to be collected when needed. Later, when the business increased so that he was supplying not only the West Coast fleet, but that in the East as well, he imported cattle from Canada and grazed them on the fields behind St. John's. So we worked up a good business out of loaves of bread, didn't we? Nan concluded. While she slept after lunch, Em and I wandered by the beach. "'Fantastic woman,' I said. "'Was she brought up here?' "'Oh, no. She came here with Parson Curling when she was a youngster. "'She used to help Mrs. Curling with the children and the cooking. "'She met John here, says he was the first person she saw when she landed off the schooner, "'and that he started courting her right away.' "'Now, at that moment, I was far more interested in the Reverend Joseph Curling than in John Harding.' Does she remember much about the Curlings? I asked, for in the late 1800s, Joseph Curling was well known along the coast. He built schools and churches, started a lending library in Woody Point, and attended to many medical emergencies. My dear, Em said, she remembers everything. She can repeat word for word any number of conversations. Of course, she may have made them up, but if she did, she's told them so many times that now they are truth to her. Anyhow, they're the most interesting conversations you ever heard. So we managed that afternoon to stir her to the Curling family and her life with them. A kind of tall man, thin, with a nice face, was Reverend Joseph Curling. Nan said, he talks strange, though, sort of bit off his words, just like the Englishmen do now on the radio, but we got used to it. The first thing he did when he came in the middle of summer, it was, was to call a meeting, and, and we all went down to the church to hear what he had to say. He wanted us to build a parsonage and to fix up the church, which was pretty dilapidated, I must admit. He had plans all drawn up for the building, so that the men said he must be a good carpenter. He said they could start in the fall getting out logs and sawing the lumber, and that would give them something to do when they couldn't go fishing, and they thought that was a good idea. He had us pretty excited, I can tell you, and when he sailed away with Bishop Field, we promised we would do everything he wanted. We didn't see him for a good spell after that. He went down the coast in his ship, the Lavrock, to visit places that hadn't seen a clergyman for years, and then he went back to St. John's to be ordained. It was November before he got back here, and we had the parsonage started, two rooms finished and the roof on, and we couldn't wait to see how pleased he would be with us. I can't tell you how good it made you feel when he looked you straight in the face and told you what he wanted done, because you knew that he was thinking all the time of your good, not his. 
Anyhow, when he came, he brought two teachers, two helpers, and a man who went around with him to all the places he visited. I think he must have been a missionary, too. And you should have seen the stuff they brought. Books and papers and pencils for the schools, and nails and glass and doors and window sashes for the buildings. It was like someone coming down from heaven. He was pleased with the work, and he settled down in the parsonage for the winter. Soon he called another meeting. I'll never forget that one. He gave it to us, I can tell you, about how dirty the place was. And that was true, of course, but we'd got so used to it that we didn't give it a second thought. He told us the first thing we had to stop was throwing garbage and dirty water out the back doors, and the next thing we was we had to fix up the lanes and paths so that we wouldn't be up to our knees in mud half the year. Then he told us what he was going to do for us. Schools with everyone learning to read and write, churches with proper baptism and marriages, sick visits. Oh, it's going to be wonderful. But the parson said he wanted us to help him do all this with the help of God. He was a saintly man, I can tell you, but he didn't expect God to do it all. Fact is, he did a good bit of himself, what with buying the nails and the tools and window sashes out of his own money and paying the school teachers too. Well, that winter he was with us nearly all the time, only once leaving by schooner to take one of the schoolmasters down and visit the sick. That's when we found out he was as good a seaman as a Christian. Some of the old men said they never did see such a good hand with the sail, such a calm, cool-headed man in a gale. And he was as good a hand walking on snowshoes once he got the hang of it. He used to walk for miles on them to visit somebody sick or to hold prayers in some little cove where there was only a family or two. Here Nan paused in her narrative, and then she leaned forward toward me and said with stark intensity, Now that I'm older, no more about the world, I wonder how he stood it. How could he have lived among us, so happy and so good? He used to comfort and find living so far away from his own kind. His parishioners were pleased when he married Emmy Robinson of St. John's. He brought her back to the Bay of Islands by way of the Straits of Belle Isle, making visitations along the way and so taking six weeks for the voyage. A strange honeymoon, surely. Beautiful, gentle, well-educated Mrs. Curling came like a burst of summer sunshine. This, by the way, was in Birchie Cove, later renamed Curling in their honor. Nan said, How well I remember her. I went to live with the Curlings as soon as she came and didn't leave them till I went to my own house with John. We fixed up the parsonage with curtains and flowers. We taught the women how to cook lots of new dishes. And Mrs. Curling went to visit the sick people every single day, carrying good food to them and always ready to help with their families. Pretty soon, every house in the place had curtains to the windows and flowers and pots on the sills. Wherever they went, they were needed either for spiritual or physical help. The distances they traveled were long, often in extreme cold. On their first trip to Bombay, in winter over the hills and marshes by dog team, they passed a stormy night in a lean-to, which they made in a snow-cleared space with trees woven into a shelter. Next day, when they reached the settlement, the hungry dogs took chase after a stray pig and unceremoniously dumped the parson and his wife into a snowbank. On another trip in midwinter, they came upon a man whose hand was badly mangled in a shooting accident, and him they treated with the contents of Mrs. Curling's sewing kit, white silk thread, a needle, and a pair of scissors. 
Before he went away for good, Nan told us, they did have a few years of peace and quiet, and they had one friend of their own kind, anyhow. I remembered that it was around 1880 that the government sent the first magistrate to Bay of Islands. He, he was a retired Navy man who lived with the Curlings a good part of the time. But they lost him, too, and that was a very sad thing. It happened in February of a wonderful bad winter, snowdrifts and bitter cold, when Parson Curling was down here in Bombay. It was on a Sunday, and we had three services that day. The church packed every time, and Parson Curling was tired. Just as the last service was done, a message came that the magistrate was terribly sick and wanted his friend. So Curling, and with two other men, started to walk back to Bay of Islands in the dark. They walked all night and most of the next day until evening when they knew they were lost. They made camp in the woods, and I mind Parson Curling telling afterwards how they had only one match, and they never in the world thought they'd get a fire going with the soggy wood. But they did. Anyhow, when they reached the magistrate house the next morning, he was dead. I don't believe Curling ever got over that. Many's the deathbed he had reached in time to give comfort, and now his best friend had died without him. Shocking thing, wasn't it? He went back to England soon after that for a trip, and when he came back he only stayed a few years before he left for good. John and I used to hear from them sometimes, but we never felt they were gone. Everywhere we looked we saw things to remind us of them, and hardly a day would pass without somebody mentioning them. In the evening, when we were seated at the elegant mahogany table with its heavy old silver and English china, Nan said, I wouldn't have been me, nor John the man he was, without the curlings. Come to that, there wouldn't have been this house with all its comforts either. We couldn't want what we didn't know what was in the world. But the curlings showed us that there was a better life than the fishermen then lived, and more to it than just food and shelter. In the place that still bears his name, Curling built a beautiful church. Simple and white, it nestled in a grove of spruce trees that divided it from the churchyard. It was furnished with oak pews, lamps, and hangings of brass, and simple but lovely stained-glass windows, all of which Curling gave to the people. I remember the church well, how the sunlight filtered through the windows and filled the air with amber, how the building sat on the earth as if it had grown there, until it caught fire one night and burned to the ground. Only once did I see Nan after this visit. She died at ninety-two during a winter when I was far from home, and I still miss her. Bryant, her son, is dead too, and the rambling old house overlooking the hills of Bombay is now empty and forlorn. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmore National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. And tune in to the next episode for a portrait of cantankerous Uncle George. 